Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. A recent Wednesday evening in our house, the clock ticking down to the first hurling session of the year for two of our boys. The change in energy was palpable, seeping into the mood of the entire house, fueling the most mundane tasks with nervous energy. There was the glance at the clock every few minutes to mark the time. Hurleys were checked and rechecked, their names written in thick black marker above the boss in block capitals. There was the choice of footwear, runners or boots. Was it an evening for shorts or tracksuit pants? With an hour left of departure, it was time to get the hurleys out for a tip around the garden. The first touch was light and skittish. The minutes waiting to go felt like days. And that was just me. The two boys were souped up and ready as well, but surprisingly calm. Thomas is seven, Liam is five. When we finally arrived at the local field, the air danced with the happy symphony of chattering children. Some of the younger ones were shy, staying close to their parents at first. But the older ones bounded out onto the field like spring calves let out for the first time. I felt a lightness in the pit of my stomach for them. When I was a kid, hurling was a way into a different world that I felt closed off from. We lived at the far end of our parish, six miles away from the village where the GAA club was. In the 80s, six miles away might as well have been a continent away. We took the school bus across every day, 45 minutes over and 45 minutes back. Kids picked on me a bit when I was in school and it wasn't an easy time, but hurling helped. George Lane, who lived down the road from us, was one of the trainers. My memory of those days is now planed and polished down to the scene of a farmhouse kitchen, bathed in late evening sun. Delicious scones and jam on the table, made by George's wife Eleanor. And their sons and me being hurried into the car before he headed across country, calling to houses along the way and shoehorning more kids in as he went. But I also remember the nerves the fear inside myself. In my mind, I was sure the other kids were waiting for me to fail, to be the outsider again. But playing hurling forced them to see me in a different light. More importantly, it helped me to see myself in a different light. It helped me connect more easily with people and feel a sense of belonging that I didn't have before. Playing sport was an immense challenge in every way. I wasn't quick or particularly skillful. I was shy and quiet and unsure of myself. But being there and playing helped me face those challenges and find ways to overcome them. It helped me find an inner strength, a sense of worth. And that's what sport does for so many people of all ages. But so does art, drama, music, whatever connects people to their best self. That connection for so many children was lost in the last year and I think it's left many of them feeling lost. I saw traces of that even in our own small kids during lockdown. One of the boys, Liam, settled easily into school last September before everything got shut down and then spent the first weeks back in school after lockdown in tears every morning. Three months locked away in the winter murk had left him withdrawn and shy 
He wouldn't go to the supermarket. Even a walk up the road was painful. Talking to parents and teachers across the country in those few weeks revealed versions of the same anxiety manifesting in homes and classrooms everywhere. What we are seeing now in playing fields across the sporting codes and across the country is like a liberation, a renewal. Children everywhere over these past few weeks have returned to the pastimes that give them value and confidence and the first sense of stepping out into the world to form their own unique identity. Despite the difficulties and traumas of the past year, there also lies in every child the resilience and the hope of a better future. Before we headed off for their first training session the other week, I watched Liam pulling on a ball in our garden, missing a few and skimming a few others, but never breaking from his task. After a while, he started making contact. Next thing, I was throwing balls up for him to hit like we were playing baseball. Liam beaming at that pristine feeling when Hurley makes perfect contact with ball. In the middle of it all, he stopped and looked at me. A good man never gives up, he said. I was startled, impressed and curious all at once. Fair play, Liam, I said. Where did you hear that? Peter Rabbit's dad in the cartoon, he replied. Bless you, Beatrix Potter, I thought. Wise words for boys, girls and woodland creatures alike. For a while, during my teenage years, I tried hard to be Bob Dylan, but my mother kept interfering. I knew that if only I was allowed to own a denim jacket, like the one Dylan wore on the cover of Greatest Hits, Volume 2, I could easily attain a Bob-like state of beatitude. But my mother said, no, denim jackets looked common, so I could just put that straight out of my head. I wasn't getting one, and had I done my homework yet? I listened to Joan Baez sing heartbreakingly in Diamonds and Rust about how Dylan's eyes were bluer than Robin's eggs, how he was the original vagabond, the unwashed phenomenon, and I wanted some girl, any girl, to sing about me with that same heartbreak in her voice. Sadly, my eyes were green, a difficult problem to rectify, but the vagabondage and the unwashed phenomenon bit were attainable. I knew I could do unwashed. Unwashed was easy. Being phenomenal might pose more of a challenge, but I could leave that for when I was older. Again, my mother intervened. I was untidy and a disgrace, and I was going to get the land of my life in the summer exams, and had I done my homework yet? Then I discovered blood on the tracks, and my suspicions were confirmed. There was much more to Dylan than a denim jacket and poor personal hygiene. In fact, Dylan 
was beyond mortal reach. There's something disquieting about the hero of your teenage years turning 80. It's easy when you're young to imagine that your idols exist on another plane. You think of them as sleek-limbed gods, reclining eternally somewhere on Mount Olympus, protected from the passing years by a combination of talent, charisma and money. To this day, there's still a little part of me that thinks of Dylan as permanently inhabiting a world where there's always music in the cafes at night and revolution in the air. He's forever wondering, as he lies in bed, if that woman he used to love has changed at all and if her hair is still red. But an 80th birthday is an unignorable reminder of his mortality and ours. Dylan's voice of sand and glue, in David Bowie's memorable phrase, has become even more rasping, croaking and nasal with the passing years. And he now prefers to spend most of his time on stage, seated behind a piano, rather than standing up, playing the guitar. And who could blame him? Yet there's no reason why an 80th birthday can't just as easily be regarded as an acknowledgement of our vitality, an endorsement of the human spirit's desire to beat on against the current. This is especially true of Dylan, who has continued to write, record and tour all through his 70s, long after many people that age and younger have decided the time has come to put their feet up in front of the telly. Of course, the mean-spirited will say that he should have put his feet up in front of the telly years ago and point to the highly uneven quality of his work. Even die-hard fans like myself would have to concede that they may have a point. There are a few Dylan albums from the 90s that I've listened to only once or twice at most. The argument I've used in his defence, after a few glasses of wine, is that I've always felt that Dylan conformed closely to Joyce's definition of the artist as being beyond or above his handiwork, indifferent, paring his fingernails. This usually silences my enemies long enough for me to strengthen my case by pointing out the perverse pleasure he seems to take during concerts in performing versions of his best-known songs which he has dismantled and then reassembled beyond any hope of recognition. This is all half in jest and almost wholly in earnest. What attracted me to Dylan when I was a teenager is what still attracts me to him now. He seems not to care. Patrick Kavner wrote about the importance for a writer of discovering the difficult art of not caring, which he defined as having the courage of one's feelings, of having a sense of values and developing a sense of confidence. It seems to me Dylan has always displayed that sense of not caring. As a virtually unknown 21-year-old, he walked off the set of The Ed Sullivan Show when the producers refused to let him perform a song that satirised the anti-communist John Birch Society. As an almost 80-year-old, he tested the patience of his audience by releasing a song inspired by the Kennedy assassination that was 17 minutes long. That song, The Sublime Murder Most Foul, is as much about the redemptive power of art as it is about the events in Dallas. 
It was also his first number one hit. No one could complain if Dylan, who turns 80 tomorrow, decided to call it a day. But I'd be saddened if he did. Seamus Heaney writes about the gift of keeping going on your own terms and the more fulfilling gift of getting renewed and revived by some further transformation. I hope to see Dylan continue to renew and transform himself in his 80s, as he's done again and again throughout his career. I hope he'll keep on keeping on. The sun was shining I was laying in bed Wondering if she'd changed it all If her hair was still red Her folks, they said our lives together Sure was gonna be rough They never did like mama's homemade dress Papa's bankbook wasn't big enough I live in an old house. By now, I know better than to say I own it. For almost 40 years, it has owned me. Shaping my life and others it is inhabited. First of all, it's impressed me that I'm not the first. About seven generations have already lived here. I am in a long line. It has shaped their lives too. From the housekeeper who once lived in what is now the dining room to the girls who ran up and down the steep stairs from the kitchen to the formal rooms on the main floor. Or carrying bowls of warmed water upstairs to the bedrooms for master and mistress to wash then carrying down the slops and chamber pots to empty outside. The fireplaces in every room needed to be cleared out as well, with new coals brought up to light the fires in the evening. This house demanded a lot of human attention, almost as much as a spoiled princess she appears to be. When we first moved in, I was told it was easier to spoil a house than to spoil a child. The truth has hit hard several times, particularly when it demanded not merely a facelift, but an entire body lift. At about 180 years of age, damp was seeping through the floor. No damp course, naturally. In fact, damp was everywhere, as it seems this particular neighbourhood was constructed directly over a tributary to the daughter called the Swan. Then there was the peeling skin of the plaster, the sag in the ceiling that signalled damp rot, the decaying grout of the brick facade. After several years of sporadic bodywork, the old princess looks reputable again, a bit like the ageing first Queen Elizabeth with her elaborate corset and thick face paint. But the eccentricities remain. These are at times so endearing that I now hold the theory that older people should always live in the old houses, even though it might be a race as to who falls apart first. New houses, after all, show all the wrinkles, the slight stoop, or the graying hair. Against their sharp, severe lines, age looks like an appalling deviance. But in an old house, where nothing is really straight, the sags look natural, as if they'd been earned, as this house has earned them. There is also a natural, enduring tolerance for one's small vices. Whether it's a kind of systematic dishevelment the large spaces do compensate for a lot of clutter, or the indulgence extended to last week's fireplace ashes still in place. After all, as the house history revealed, this place has been home to two criminals, 
one of a hundred years ago known as the Diamond Thief, clearly a cad, having allegedly stolen diamond studs from a shop in Sackville, now O'Connell Street, he deserted his then-wife to set up with a new family in America, only to return to claim his share of her inheritance once she died. Of the second criminal, the less said the better, except to remark that there is still a large combination safe, now cemented over, under our washing machine, and to record that I just managed to salvage our furniture from the rapacious, if fully justified, bailiff, who appeared just months after the house was sold, to repossess its entire contents. Now when I go about the house, I'm reminded by the elaborate locks on each of the bedroom doors that in common with many houses in the area, it has served its time as a boarding house, saving several widows from destitution. In the long basement hallway, I recall the surprise visit of a former child of the house, now in late middle age, who remarked how, in the 1930s, he had scrubbed down his quarry tiles, soiled by the blood of game left to hang there, or on going upstairs to the main floor, of his memories of how the large folding doors would be lapped back to provide a space for dancing, with fires blazing in both formal rooms and a small band of musicians in one corner. In all these ways, the house says to me, you too are becoming an ancestor. I will be here when you are gone, but the ways you have kept me alive will add you to my own history, even while I'm shaping yours. There is walking, and then there is walking beside the flowing water of a river. I find myself, like the poet and short story writer Raymond Carver, drawn to rivers. It pleases me, he wrote, loving rivers, loving them all the way back to their source, loving everything that increases me. What is it about flowing water that fascinates us? Something instinctual, primitive, I suspect, though I am not sure but I do know that I am fortunate in living close to the River Dodder. I wander along its banks, west towards Glenismole, or east towards the mouth of the Liffey where it meets Dublin Bay. These riparian outings always replenish the soul. I stop frequently to take photographs, but they never quite capture what it was that moved me to stop in the first place. I stand still, but the river does not wait for me. The unceasing pull that the ocean exerts on the river has to be more than just the force of gravity, surely. It seems spiritual somehow, this relentless urge of rivers to return to the sea. Upstream, the Dodder flows through the valley of Glenismole, the one-time summer hunting ground of the Fianna, where Ushin returned from Tirnanog in search of his former comrades, only to fall from his horse and break the spell of timelessness. I picture the magnificent Ushin on the white steed Einvar in the moments before catastrophe strikes, 
and then the old man he becomes. I imagine the tiny microscopic particles of Ushin's aged body finding their way into the river and becoming one with it. Is there some trace yet of Ushin in the bed of the river daughter? Has some part of me, the riverbank walker, entered the river too? From Glenismole, the river makes its way past ancient graveyards and monasteries, past the headquarters of the Church of Scientology, through the channel of mill races, down weirs, over waterfalls, under the bridge where the home of Austin Clark once stood, and the house of the poet was known by the trees. The gush of water is relentless, flowing over obstacles, creating eddies, moving sand and pebbles to form little islands where duck and waterfowl take up their stations. Downstream from the weir at Milltown, I watch a heron who stands, one-legged, and who in turn waits and watches. A kingfisher is a blur of luminescence, sudden and fleeting in its beauty. And I think of Gerard Manley Hopkins, who immortalised the kingfisher catching fire. At Ashton's pub, where my father worked as a barman for many years, I follow the river to Donnybrook. The path is narrow and tree-lined. The willows are returning to life. The water flows in abundance over the weirs that once fed the paper mills. A man sits on the edge of a weir fishing, the white water rushing all around him. A dog, a red setter, runs to the water's edge and barks. But the river is not for turning and it is the dog who slinks away. A single crow, perched on the branch of an overhanging tree, calls loudly and incessantly, singing a song of complaint that feels comical on this glorious spring morning. The river hugs Herbert Park and its avenue of cherry blossoms, and it is as if I am in a different country. In the early morning the park is sleepy, the tea room still, the swans folded in on themselves. Beyond Ball's Bridge, the river widens. There's not a breeze stirring, so the water carries the sky and the black calligraphic stroke of birds against the occasional white cloud. Under the shadow of the stadium at Lansdowne, a man is sitting on a camp chair in a grove of trees. His tent rests snug in the shelter of the new bridge. He is king of the morning. I offer him a wave of salutation. He nods in acknowledgement. Now the river has become tidal and the flow increases as the water senses the journey's end is in sight. I'm not sure of the origin of the name daughter or its Irish version on Duchre. In Middle English, the meaning of our modern daughter is to shake or tremble. But this is no uncertain trembling river. It meets a river Liffey at the Grand Canal dock that already has one foot in the sea. It meets the Liffey head-on. As I make my way back upstream, I am dimly aware that the city lies beyond the riverbanks, but only dimly. Here is a world of flow and freshness. I do not imagine that the river will ever lose its power to draw me towards it. As I walk this riverbank, one foot in front of the other, each step a continuation, like an infinity of and and next and 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 next. I realise that walking is a form of poetry, a form of love, of loving a river all the way back to its source, of loving everything 
that increases me. Today and tomorrow And yesterday too The flowers are dying Like all things do Follow me close I'm going to Berlin Let me take you back to a winter Sunday afternoon a while ago. I opened the back door into the farmhouse and the dogs Molly and Tess come bounding towards me. Molly wags her tail so much she may take off like a Jack Russell helicopter. Tess, a mass of black and white fur, more sheep than dog, slinks back under the table. I smell the roast lamb, onions, carrots and potatoes cooking. His face lights up as I approach him, his arms outstretched for a hug, and I plant a soft kiss on his cheek. The blue jug I brought him back from the Azores sits centre stage on the table, stuffed with pink hydrangea from his garden. I put my chocolate pudding in the fridge and then make the gravy. We sit and eat and chat about the family, the neighbours, and that match may own nearly one. I wash the dishes and we sit in companionable silence with our tea in front of the turf fire reading the paper. I still love those Sunday afternoons with this man, one of my favourite people on earth. He is not my husband. He is not my lover. He is my 88-year-old uncle. It took me a while to realise his true value in my life. For a time, I believed my weekly visits were motivated by duty. How wrong I was. Martin is my late father's little brother. He never married. He never left the home place. He and his sister May tended to his sick mother for years until she passed away. He is and always was my favourite uncle. You see, every summer through the 1960s and 70s, we piled into the little white Austin A30 in Nottingham. Suitcases tied on the roof with orange baling twine. My right buttock wedged firmly against the wheel arch. My father drove my mother, my three brothers and me home to my grandparents' farm near Charlestown. All the aunts, uncles and cousins were gathered there, squished into that little farmhouse. No hotel, no matter how luxurious, could possibly have yielded us more pleasure. I remember mornings of climbing over piles of brothers and cousins, all sleeping top to toe, to find the Uncle Marty in the kitchen lighting the range. I felt warm and safe and loved as he helped me pull on my wellies. Buckets in hand... The dogs with us, we walked down the hill to the bottom of the field to the well, my hand snug in his. The morning sun pouring light into the living room of my childhood. Newly mown hay, birdsong, bees falling into foxgloves. We would leave the fresh water on the windowsill at the back door and then amble up the lane to fetch the cows for milking. I can still feel the steamy breath of the cattle warming my face as I help tether them 
and stroked their foreheads. I can see him sat on the stool in the byre, squeezing the milk into the silver pail. He would then let me pull and pull on those pink udders, whilst a few drops dribbled from the teat. Ah, you're a great girlin. She will have your milk in the whole herd by the time you go home. After days helping to bring in the hay or afternoons footing turf on the bog, when the dinner was eaten and the jobs all done, we sat down around the fire with two packs of double diamond cards. If we had played for real money, Marty would be a millionaire, his diffident manner fooling us all. He would carry on playing his hand, oblivious to me perched on his knee, putting ribbons into his mop of brown curly hair, his blue eyes dancing with delight. When my life fell apart a decade ago, it was to this quiet, gentle man that I came. He asked me no questions. He made me endless pots of tea. We sat there beside the range. I felt as warm and safe and loved as that little girl struggling with her wellies. Now, when the Angelus bell rings as we take our last sups of tea and I hear that solemn voice from Midwest Radio begin again, the death has occurred. I open the back door and hug him a little too tightly as we say our goodbyes for another week. I pat the dogs and shoo them back inside. On the drive back to Westport, I wonder how I will cope without the tenderness, the treasure of these ordinary Sunday afternoons with my uncle, who wants nothing from me but my presence and a little of my attention. Why did it take me so long to remember that time spent doing very little with someone I love is one of the greatest pleasures in life? On this morning's programme, Back to Training by Michael Foley. Bob Dylan, bow down to him on Sunday, salute him when his birthday comes, was by Connell Hamill. This Old House by Jerusha McCormack. Walking the Daughter was by Kevin McDermott. And Sunday Afternoons was by Kate Carty. The music was Letting Go by Miholo Sulevoin with the Irish Chamber Orchestra, Tangled Up in Blue by Bob Dylan. Cecilienne in E-flat by Maria Theresia von Paradis, played by Jacqueline Dupre on cello with Gerald Moore on piano. And I Contain Multitudes, also by Bob Dylan. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer of the programme is Sarah Binchy. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.